Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Humans love to fix things, to find the cause of the problem, to probe, tinker, and mend. We ask, in many different ways, why does this happen? What's the root cause? What's the origin? What or who is at fault? And what or who is responsible? The idea of responsibility has taken many forms, both historically and culturally. Philosophers have long debated whether we can be truly responsible for our actions in the context of discussions about free will. Theologians have wrestled with the idea of taking responsibility for our sins. Scientists have joined the discussion by searching for causation and exploring the psychology and neurology of our brains. But today, the idea of individual responsibility is often invoked in discussions about welfare, poverty and enterprise. That we have a tendency to find some other party or entity or institution or force in the universe to blame for our problems instead of looking within and putting some focus on the individual as uh, the most responsible agent for his or her own life. The two numbers stand for 100% responsibility and zero excuses. I just do labor work and got no education. We also have to deliver, I think, a very clear and honest message to the poor in America. And that is that there is much they can do to help themselves in the face of this depressing data. Increasingly, throughout the liberal and neoliberal periods, we've emphasized in politics and the media at least, responsibility for ourselves at the expense of other types of responsibilities, obligations and duties. 
For example, in his best-selling 2012 book, Stepping Up, Dr. John Izo promises his readers that taking responsibility changes everything. Personal productivity author Laura Stack insists that the fundamental responsibility that each of us has is that we are completely 100% responsible for how our lives turn out. And Jordan Peterson has written that we must each adopt as much responsibility as possible for individual life, society and the world. The focus is often on a responsibility for oneself, atomized, isolated, entrepreneurial maybe, but rather than on obligations to others or duties to our communities. Joe must dip into his savings as soon as he retires. That is, if he has any. In 1947, the average American family had less than $500 in savings. So, even though he's already been retired once, Joe would have to go to work, if he could find a job. Philosopher Yasha Monk has suggested that we live in an age of responsibility. The idea that we should each make something of ourselves, stand up on our own two feet, take control of our lives, adopt maximum responsibility. They all sound, on the surface at least, powerful and harmless. They appear to be good lessons. But as we'll see, the rise in emphasis on this type of responsibility has weakened social bonds, justified the dismantling of welfare programs, encourages inwardness and blame, and sidelines other interpretations of responsibility that we've seen historically. And this type of individual responsibility is almost always associated with one central topic, poverty. If someone is to blame for their own behaviour, their own actions, and their own condition, then only they can be responsible for their own poverty. Interventions are useless. If we look to history, we'll see that this particular interpretation of individual responsibility is, in fact, relatively new, has serious flaws, and ignores more nuanced interpretations of the concept. Of course, the idea of individual responsibility has always existed. It's just taken different forms, has been interpreted in many ways, and that the nuance in how the concept is composed has important consequences. Is poverty a personal inadequacy? A problem of persons? A problem of character? A problem of culture? Or is it a problem of place? Of systems? Of society? This question has been approached in many ways. First, let's take a look at how the concept of responsibility has, historically, taken many forms. For most of history, Poverty was a fact of life for almost everyone. Death, disease and disadvantage were the norm. And most were at the mercy of nature. Droughts, storms, dark winters and bitter frosts. Blame and responsibility for the natural condition of man took very different forms than they do today. 
It was often not a question of who was responsible for their own poverty, but who was responsible for care. The term obligations was often used. In the 13th century, the moral philosopher and theologian Thomas Aquinas wrote extensively about the Christians' obligations to provide support for the poor. In England, when the poor laws were established after the decline of the monasteries, the parish and local officials were obligated and duty-bound by the crown to provide poor relief. Feudal landlords, whether they complied or not, were expected, morally and politically, to provide protection and sustenance for tenants in times of need. A 1536 Act of Parliament insisted that local authorities exhort, move, stir and provoke people to be liberal and bountiful, to extend their good and charitable arms and contributions as the poor, impotent, lame, feeble, sick and diseased people, being not able to work, may be provided and relieved so that in no ways they nor one of them be suffered to go openly in begging. Families also became legally responsible for each other after 1601. The father and grandfather, and the mother and grandmother, and the children of every poor, old, blind, lame, impotent person, or other poor person not able to work, being of sufficiently able, shall, at their own charge, relieve and maintain every such poor person. In the Italian city-states of the 14th and 15th centuries, as capitalism began to emerge, a cultural ideal prevailed that it was the religious and secular authorities that were responsible for the public good, the security and sustenance of the city's inhabitants. And in China, the Confucian tradition stressed obligations and relationships rather than responsibility for the self. As capitalism released people from their dependency on the land and weakened feudalism across Europe, labour markets became more fluid, jobs came and went, and the grinding but somewhat predictable work of agricultural tillage was replaced by an unstable rise in modern industry. Capitalism, for all its dynamism, created a new class, the unemployed. Take one state, Philadelphia. In 1709, there were only three men and nine women who required assistance. They were provided for by the local officials and the expenses were met retroactively through a poor tax. It took the creation of wealth for poverty to become unpredictable and more widespread. The idea of poverty increasingly became a moral one. In the 19th century, being labelled a pauper, someone in receipt of poor relief, became a stigma, a sign of moral failure, a sin. The president of Harvard, Josiah Quincy, wrote in 1821 that there are two classes, the impotent poor, in which denomination are included all who are wholly incapable of work through old age, infancy, sickness or corporeal debility, but second were the able poor, all who are capable of work of some nature or other, but differing in the degree of their capability and in the kind of work of which they are capable. A cultural line began to be drawn between those that were capable 
and those that were not. At around the same time, at a committee in Philadelphia, officials declared that the poor in consequence of vice constitute here and everywhere by far the greatest part of the poor, from three-fourths to nine-tenths of the paupers in all parts of our country may attribute their degradation to the vice of intemperance. Reverend Charles Burroughs preached that in speaking of poverty, let us never forget that there is a distinction between this and pauperism. The former is an unavoidable evil, to which many are brought through necessity and in the wise and gracious providence of God. Pauperism is the consequence of willful error, of shameful indolence, of vicious habits. It's a misery of human creation, the pernicious work of man, the lamentable consequence of bad principles and morals. Seventeen and a half million people. One-third of all rural families are left behind in an age of technology and industrial progress. Families, some of them large families, make less than $3,000 a year. Whites, Negroes, American Indians, Spanish Americans, farmers, ex-farmers, handymen, former coal miners, road builders, Rural people struggling with poor housing, limited education, few employment opportunities, and little hope. As the deserving poor were beginning to be marked out, biology was becoming a very modern problem. The inherited organic imperfection vitiated constitution of poor stock as the Massachusetts Board of State Charities put it in 1866. Throughout the 19th century, the growth and interest in eugenics linked biology, heredity and destitution as a problem that was unresolvable for those incapable of contributing adequately to the common good. There were those that were lazy and turned to vice out of sin, but could be changed, and those that could not that were subhuman. Charles Davenport, a leading US eugenicist, wanted to purify our body politics of the feeble-minded and the criminalistic and the wayward by using the knowledge of heredity. Davenport thought that immigration of lesser races would rapidly make the American population darker in pigmentation, smaller in stature, more mercurial, more given to crime, larceny, kidnapping, assault, murder, rape, and sex immorality. The idea of feeble-mindedness took hold. Immigrants at Ellis Island were given a simple puzzle to solve, and if they failed, they were sent back across the Atlantic. When the IQ test was invented at the beginning of the 20th century, it was administered to 2 million in the army, and a national crisis ensued when 40% of recruits were declared feeble-minded. The idea of national degeneration was a topic of concern across Europe and America. Indiana passed the first state sterilization laws in 1907. 24 states followed, permitting the sterilization of the mentally unfit. According to the American Eugenics Society, Hitler's sterilization laws showed great leadership and courage. 
The focus on biology in the 20th century, a lack of vital force, as some put it, or an inherited tendency to vice, according to others, started the idea that poverty and feeble-mindedness were an inevitable part of many individuals' biological makeup, that it was unavoidable, that they were not only responsible for their condition, but there was nothing they or anyone else could do to help them. But poverty was, of course, everywhere. Decent paid work hard to come by, harvest failures, famine, disability and illness continued to be widespread. The 19th century was a period of great change, low wages and unstable markets. And modernization happens at varying speeds, while some areas, elite, white and part of the metropole, got richer, others lagged behind. This observation called for a new understanding of poverty and development. It could no longer simply be a matter of singular lazy paupers roaming the countryside. Entire groups were being left behind. A sociology of poverty was needed. Before the law, you and you alone are responsible for the shocking, appalling waste you've caused. But we know today there's more to it than that. You parents must share the responsibility, for somewhere along the line you have failed your sons. You have failed to teach them moral values. <laughs> and by denying them the love, the security, and the sense of belonging, which is important to every living being, you have hurt them as surely as though you had denied them food. I know that there are other factors too. The school, the church, and the community all share in this important problem. But the basic fact remains that you three boys are yourselves responsible for your acts. In the 1860s, the idea of a criminal class emerged in England. Organised, professional, and lurking the streets of England's cities, the idea of a distinct group became popular in the press. These delinquents had no understanding of Christian morality, duty, or virtue, were irredeemable, and could be responded to only with a growth in the numbers and power of an organised modern police force. This was despite the fact that the majority of crime was linked to hunger, poverty and unemployment. A 1904 Scotland Yard report concluded that the so-called unemployed have the appearance of habitual loafers rather than unemployed workmen. The poor and distressed appearance of numbers of persons met in the East End is due more to thriftlessness and intemperate habits than to absolute poverty. Poverty is brought about by want of thrift. The famous psychiatrist Henry Maudsley argued that teaching self-control to these criminals was as foolish as to preach moderation to the east wind or gentleness to the hurricane. Criminality, according to a royal report, was the result of those that roam the country in search of handouts. The prevalent cause of vagrancy, it concluded, was the impatience of steady labour. The Times newspaper in London described the criminal class as 
more alien from the rest of the community than a hostile army, for they have no idea of joining the ranks of industrious labour either here or elsewhere. The civilised world is simply a carcass on which they prey, and London, above all, is to them a place to sack. This backward and lazy group required an explanation, and in the 20th century, the idea of inherent vice in distinct groups gave rise to a new area of study, the culture of poverty. Of course, a lot of people don't understand what it is living in one room. The cooking conditions is very hard, especially on the wife. She has to do the cooking, it's all done on the gas ring. A means of frying this and frying that. If it comes to a baked dinner, it's in the oven. And then light a fire outside. It's too warm in the room. Of course, we can only buy enough food for the one day, as there's no conditions or anywhere to keep the food overnight. As you wouldn't do the food any good to keep it, being as all the breath of the five of us in the one room would turn it bad. The washing conditions, we have a little bit. That is in the backyard. It's not too great, but we get over that. Of course, uh, I don't suppose people realise what it really is to be tied up in the one room and cannot get anything any better. With the Cold War spreading throughout the world, theories of development became more important for the West as communist and capitalist societies competed to improve the condition of their citizens. Hesitant to criticise structural factors, many academics in the West blamed what was termed backwardness on a culture of poverty. These theorists took one of two routes that culture was a problem of people, that the cause for their poverty came from inside them, in their psychologies, or that culture was a response to outside causes that they often had little to no control over. In the mid-50s, the American political scientist Edward Banfield travelled to the southern Italian village of Montegrano, a pseudonym for Charamonte, to try to understand how poverty was perpetuated. He saw what he described as a cultural pattern of amoral familiarism. The villagers, he argued, lived by the rules, maximised the material short-run advantage of the nuclear family, assume that all others will do likewise. In his influential book, The Moral Basis of a Backward Society, Banfield argued that the Italian villagers were inward-looking, indifferent to improving their infrastructure and hesitant to provide aid to their neighbours. He described the cultural atmosphere in the village as heavy with melancholy. Banfield subsequently became an advisor to three presidents, Nixon, Ford and Reagan, and argued throughout his career that the American lower classes had a similar cultural attitude to the Italian villagers, sharing distinct patterning of attitudes, values and modes of behaviour. But the American underclass was even worse. They attached no value to work, sacrifice, self-improvement, or the service to family, friends, or community. He argued that any attempt to improve their condition through social security programs was doomed to fail. He wrote that the lower class person lives from moment to moment. He is either unable or unwilling to take account of the future or to control his impulses. 
Improvidence and irresponsibility are direct consequences of this failure to take the future into account. And these consequences have further consequences. Being improvident and irresponsible, he is likely also to be unskilled, to move frequently from one dead-end job to another, to be a poor husband and father. We need help. Work. That's all we ask. Just a job. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to work. I'd like my husband to have a steady job, and that way we could get along better. Around the same time, anthropologist Oscar Lewis argued that the culture of poverty was a way of life that was passed down through generations. He wrote that poverty is a culture, an institution, a way of life. The family structure of the poor is different from that of the rest of society. There is a language of the poor, a psychology of the poor, a worldview of the poor. There was, he continued, a high incidence of maternal deprivation, of orality, of weak ego structure, confusion of sexual identification, a lack of impulse control, a strong present time orientation with relatively little ability to defer gratification and to plan for the future, a sense of resignation and fatalism, a widespread belief in male superiority, and a high intolerance for psychological pathology of all sorts. Banfield and Lewis typified research that emphasised individual fault and character deficiency over structural factors like unemployment. But two other authors of the post-war period took a slightly more nuanced approach. In 1965, Daniel Patrick Moynihan published The Negro Family, one of the most controversial reports on poverty in America's history. Moynihan, a sociologist and politician working under Kennedy and Lyndon B. Johnson, argued that the subculture of black Americans was stuck in a tangle of pathology and their progress in society was blocked by two main factors, the racist virus in the American bloodstream that still afflicts us and the toll of three centuries of sometimes unimaginable mistreatment. But the problem was still a cultural one and a lack of family structure in particular. The goal of intervention should be the establishment of a stable Negro family that was integral to shaping the character and ability of children. Absent fathers and matriarchal families had disastrous effects on child raising. The report was instantly controversial, setting the terms for debate that's ongoing today. Here's a quotation, for example, from a recent article by William Ryan, a Harvard psychologist who criticizes your report in The Nation. And this is what he writes, quote, The implicit point is that Negroes tolerate promiscuity, illegitimacy, one-parent families, welfare dependency, and everything else that is supposed to follow. Now, that's the criticism he makes of your report. Now, how do you answer those I, charges? I, I can't. I'm not responsible for the fact that he can't read. Uh, as, as E. Franklin Frazier said, and I quoted from him at some length, there is a lot of evidence that the Negro middle-class family, when it, when it gets its opportunity, gets a bearing, is if anything more stern, more rigid uh, than most. But uh, the evidence is simply clear. Negro Americans live like any other Americans, and when they're forced into the ghetto, when forced into disorganization, they have no more better protection well, than anyone else. I'd like to ask you one specific question, which the New York Times quotes you today as uh, saying. You say that 44% of the children in Harlem are illegitimate. Now, how do you know that? 
Also statistics in New York City Department of Health, sir. It attracted criticisms from many liberals, including feminists, and was accused of blaming the victim. It was, though, contradictory in places, and liberals used the report to justify intervention. The subtitle, after all, was A Case for National Intervention, while conservatives used the report to argue that only racial self-help could bring black Americans out of poverty. Mr. Moynihan, in your report you say, quote, equality of opportunity almost ensures inequality of results, unquote. Are you proposing preferential treatment and the hiring of Negroes? I believe this country owes the American Negro his back wages, yes. Should the federal government uh, support preferential tre- treatment for Negroes then? I believe that, I believe what President Johnson said in his Howard University speech, you cannot keep a man in chains for three centuries and take the chains off and, and say suddenly, okay, you're free to run the race of life with anybody else. They have to be made, people have to be given the opportunity to compete with effective resources. And I believe that we should make a special effort. Sociologist Richard Cloward published Delinquency and Opportunity in 1960. In a study of gangs, he described a new youth subculture one that many commentators were afraid of, that was the result of structural conditions afflicting many young Americans. Modern American aspiration, Cloward argued, was impossible for a large number across the country. This impossibility of the American dream reduced the legitimacy of American values in the eyes of many and led to a frustrated youth rebelling and searching for non-conformist alternatives. In slum areas, death from tuberculosis is twice as much as that of other areas. Death in infancy is almost double the city's average, and the general death rate is one-third higher than the death rate of all New York. But since the Great Depression and the New Deal, conservatives had been on the back foot. Even Republican presidents like Eisenhower and Nixon couldn't ignore the structural factors that led to poverty and supported, as most of the country did, social security programs. After the Great Depression and coming to terms with the allure of communism for Eastern Europeans, in both Europe and America, it was impossible not to argue that unemployment, market cycles and misfortune had a major effect on an individual's life in ways that were out of that individual's control. While the idea of a culture of poverty was becoming popular in some circles, in political life, structural constraints and social programs dominated the conversation. Kennedy talked not of individual responsibility, but of obligations. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. I saw cases in West Virginia, here in the United States, where children took home part of their school lunch in order to feed their families, because I don't think we're meeting our obligations towards these Americans. Kennedy was determined to attack the poverty problem in America, and after his assassination in 63, his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, adopted Kennedy's policies and announced an unconditional war on poverty in 1964. 
LBJ told Congress that our joint federal local effort must pursue poverty, pursue it wherever it exists, in city slums, in small towns, in sharecropper shacks, in migrant worker camps, on Indian reservations, among whites as well as Negroes, among the young as well as the aged, in the boom towns and in the depressed areas. Our aim is not only to relieve the symptom of poverty, but to cure it and above all prevent it. So we want to open the gates to opportunity. But we're also going to give all our people, black and white, the help that they need to walk through those gates. The war on poverty focused on community initiatives. Operation Head Start, for example, created thousands of jobs in community support roles with training. Its first summer alone, it employed 100,000 people. Community action was to be key. But the face of poverty, as we were soon to find out, is not always a helpless and hopeless face. Sometimes it can be full of pride and courage and hope, especially where there is no poverty of spirit. This was one of the first surprises for us at Head Start. This young mother maintains herself and five children on an income of $154 a month from social welfare and from taking in ironing. Her children are clean and Reuben, like any other children who are going to Head Start, was dressed in well-worn but neat clothing. In 1968, CBS produced a powerful documentary on hunger in America that was talked about across the country. The documentary inspired Senate hearings and sparked widespread public interest. The power of the television put the plight of millions in front of the eyes of the comfortable in new and sometimes unignorable ways. Johnson's War on Poverty, the launch of Medicare and Medicaid, an increase in social security and the development of welfare states across Europe coincided with the largest decline in poverty rates in history. But beneath the surface, a revolt was developing. Critics accused Democrats of being communists and anti-American. And while the political debates were diverse, one topic began to emerge that was well suited as a supplement to the idea of an intractable culture of poverty. Genetics. Came out with a report which suggested that blacks are inferior to whites in terms of intelligent quotient, in terms of innate ability to learn. Are you, do you accept that, that uh, description of uh, the core of the controversy? I don't use the word inferior. Blacks are uh, lower in IQ and other kinds of mental test uh, scores than white by about 15 IQ points. Educational policies, for example, have, according to conservative commentators, hit a wall. In Harvard Educational Review in 1969, psychologist Arthur Jensen asked, why has there been such uniform failure of compensatory education programs wherever they have been tried? The answer? Biology. Many children simply lacked the innate intelligence and no amount of intervention and political policy could address what was inevitable in the genes. Psychologist Richard Hernstein wrote in The Atlantic that the tendency to be unemployed may run in the genes of a family about as certainly as bad teeth do now. 
LBJ's Council of Economic Advisers pushed back, writing that the idea that the bulk of the poor are condemned to that condition because of innate deficiencies of character or intelligence has not withstood intensive analysis. But by the end of the 60s, the stage was set. On the one hand, structural factors had to be addressed and could be addressed by those in power, while on the other, individuals, their genes and their culture could be blamed for their own condition and nothing could be done to help. LBJ's war on poverty cost the taxpayer no extra money, instead relying on pre-existing federal funds. But by the early 70s, spending began to rise. The discontent of the 70s, the oil shocks, the Vietnam War, union disputes and economic stagflation gave ammunition to critics of big government and social security. As historian Michael Katz has written, Great society poverty research proved to be the last hurrah of 20th century liberalism. It rested on an expectation with roots in the progressive era that reason, science and expertise could inform public policy and persuade a benevolent state to engineer social progress. Critics of big government, like the governor of California, Ronald Reagan, wanted to send the bums back to work. The 1970s were a decade of a conservative backlash. But the idea that the poor were held back by a culture of poverty came under attack in the 70s too, and instead the idea of an underclass emerged, still with a distinct culture, but constrained by structural problems too. On the left, the structural problems included racism and economics, but some commentators also pointed to poverty being a problem of place. In 1977, Time magazine reported on an underclass nurtured by a bleak environment, producing a highly disproportionate number of the nation's juvenile delinquents, school dropouts, drug addicts and welfare mothers, and much of the adult crime, family disruption, urban decay and demand for social expenditures. In his book, The Black Underclass, Douglas Glasgow wrote that the structural factors found in market dynamics and institutional practices, as well as the legacy of racism, produce and then reinforce the cycle of poverty and in turn work as a pressure exerting a downward pull toward underclass status. But conservative critics pointed to a structural constraint too, welfare itself. Handouts, they argued, undermined the rational incentives to work in a productive, well-balanced economy. Reagan famously declared that America had fought a war on poverty and poverty had won. Government intervention had failed, but the rhetorical shift in the 80s didn't just place the individual at odds with government, but atomized that individual from the rest of society too.
Thatcher famously declared that there's no such thing as society, and Reagan said that we must reject the idea that every time a law is broken, society is guilty, rather than the lawbreaker. It's time to restore the American precept that each individual is accountable for his actions. More than this, it wasn't just individuals that were responsible for their own lives, but that the government was responsible for holding them back. Welfare, laziness and moral decay were all contributing to economic stagnation, making everyone worse off. Reagan had two Bibles, George Gilder's Wealth and Poverty and Charles Murray's Losing Ground. The best-selling Wealth and Poverty was published in 1981. It was a reimagination of capitalism, not as Adam Smith had interpreted it as the pursuit of self-interest, but instead as an altruistic endeavour. Capitalism begins with giving, Gilda argued. Not from greed, avarice or even self-love can one expect the rewards of commerce, but from a spirit closely akin to altruism, a regard for the needs of others, a benevolent, outgoing and courageous temper of mind. The cause of poverty, though, was an absence of work, family and faith. The burden he placed on the poor was that in order to move up, the poor must not only work, they must work harder than the classes above them, but the current poor, white even more than black, are refusing to work hard. But while Gilder placed responsibility on individuals, he interpreted that responsibility as one for others, not for oneself. He wrote, Capitalism transforms the gift impulse into disciplined process of creative investment based on a continuing analysis of the needs of others. In Murray's Losing Ground, however, the emphasis shifts towards an idea that American society is very good at reinforcing the investment of an individual in himself. Murray argued that poverty and delinquency had increased after 1965 despite an increase in public spending to address those problems. Black unemployment, he said, was the result of a voluntary withdrawal from the labour market. Both books were instantly controversial. The central theme of both was that government intervention had failed. However, while it was true that poverty had gotten worse, this was because the economy in total had gotten worse after 1973. Studies also began to find that those living under the poverty line had halved between 1965 and 1980. Katz writes that Murray distorted or ignored the accomplishments of social programs. He did not recognise the decline in poverty among the elderly, increased access to medical care and legal assistance, the drop in infant mortality rates or the near abolition of hunger prior to the Reagan administration's policies. But by the 90s, the idea that the individual was responsible for their own life was culturally entrenched. Yeah. Clinton promised to end welfare as we know it, and the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act restricted welfare entitlements and emphasised individual responsibility. Today we are ending welfare as we know it, but I hope this day will be remembered not for what it ended, but for what it began. A new day that offers hope, honours responsibility, 
rewards work and changes the terms of the debate so that no one in America ever feels again the need to criticize people who are poor on welfare, but instead feels the responsibility to reach out to men and women and children who are isolated, who need opportunity, and who are willing to assume responsibility and give them the opportunity and the terms of responsibility. In 1994, Charles Murray's The Bell Curve reinvigorated discussions around race, IQ, and genetics. Murray and his co-author Richard Hernstein argued that because cognitive ability was heritable, many policies aimed at improving the condition of the worst off were misguided. Whatever was responsible for poverty, for the authors, was inside the head, not out in the world. Almost every claim the book has made has been criticised or rejected. The authors misunderstood and misused statistics, and today, epigenetics, the discovery that environment can influence genetics themselves, has meant the book is almost entirely obsolete. In Inequality by Design, several authors criticised Murray and Hernstein, writing that the social environment during childhood matters more as a risk factor for poverty than Hernstein and Murray report, and that it matters statistically at least as much as do the test scores that purportedly measure intelligence. Despite this, the bell curve sold, and continues to sell, hundreds of thousands of copies. Much of the rhetoric that emerged in the 90s emphasises stricter welfare, genetic limitation, and an inward culture of poverty and fatherless homes. Murray wrote that the moral hazards of government programmes are clear. Unemployment compensation promotes unemployment, aid to families with dependent children made more families dependent and fatherless. Sarah McLanahan and Christine Pacheski point out that a substantial body of research does demonstrate that living apart from one parent is associated with a host of negative outcomes, as children score lower on tests, report lower grades, drop out of school, display a higher prevalence of behavioural and psychological problems, and are more likely to live in poverty as adults. Through his presidency, Obama frequently referred to a crisis of responsible fatherhood and healthy family. You know, one year ago this week, we kicked off a national conversation on fatherhood and personal responsibility. He said to one parish, If we are honest with ourselves, we'll admit that too many fathers are also missing. Missing from too many lives and too many homes. They have abandoned their responsibilities, acting like boys instead of men, and the foundations of our families are weaker because of it. What was dominant by the 90s was that these types of studies and comments were used and referred to in the context of genetic claims like Murray's, cultural criticisms, a lack of personal responsibility, and the dismantling of welfare, rather than in a conversation about structural, economic, social, or political issues. So the message is, it's not your fault if you abandon your children. If you become a substance abuser, if you are a criminal, no, it's not your fault, it's society's fault. Until personal responsibility and a cultural change takes place, millions of African Americans will struggle, and their anger, some of it justified, will seethe. The federal government cannot fix this problem. Only a powerful message of 
personal responsibility can turn things around. The shape of responsibility, how it's imagined, interpreted and implemented, has a complicated history, one that escapes any simple interpretation. But it seems clear that a trend has accompanied the modern history of liberalism and neoliberalism, the invention of a particular type of individual responsibility. When Kennedy encouraged Americans to ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, he seemed not to be talking about the atomized individual responsible for themselves, but an individual with obligations to their country and their society. Mauck has called this the shift from a notion of responsibility as duty to a notion of responsibility as accountability. Philosophically, individual responsibility of this type is an often incomprehensible and contradictory concept. The original meaning of the phrase pick yourself up by the bootstraps was meant as an absurd joke, it being impossible to use your own bootstraps to pick yourself up. And this irony tells us a lot about the incomprehensibility of the concept. Almost all of the factors that contribute towards the condition of poverty come from outside the individual. Education, upbringing, environment, economics and unemployment, even culture, even genetics are something that an individual has no control over and cannot be held responsible for. Even if we grant that some are lazy and delinquent, in need of cultural reform, we have to simultaneously acknowledge that the education, encouragement and solutions to those problems cannot come magically from within, but must come from the guidance and aid of others, from outside the individual in some way. It's for this reason that mutual obligations, as a concept, make much more sense than the idea of an inward individual responsibility. In Why Americans Hate Welfare, Martin Galenz found that the most important factor was the widespread belief that most welfare recipients would rather sit at home and collect benefits than work hard to support themselves. And this myth endures despite there being no evidence for it and an abundance of evidence against it. First, for example, unemployment aid is not expensive. In the UK, it accounts for about 0.25% of total government spending in a budget of around 800 billion. Most only claim for temporary periods and only about 1% of the country are claiming at any one time. Furthermore, the majority of people experience poverty at some point in their lives, and most only experience short-term impoverishment. In their study, the OECD concluded that reports have suggested that the benefit system has disincentivized work and encouraged a culture of dependency. However, the OECD has shown that falling relative values of benefits have increasingly contributed to rising poverty rates across countries. And the evidence shows that the war on poverty, the Great Society and federal intervention in America coincided with the pulling of millions out of poverty. Poverty declined to its lowest point in recorded history. This engram shows the rise in occurrences of the phrases individual responsibility and personal responsibility in books since 1800, with a sharp rise since the late 90s. 
This one shows the parallel decline in the occurrences of the more outward-looking word, duty. What I hope is clear is that I have not been arguing that we should not be talking about responsibilities, only that the particular form individual and personal responsibility has taken, atomized, asocietal, ideally self-dependent, culturally backward, genetically limited, is a relatively new historical and political concept which is used to justify the dismantling of welfare, the rejection of altruism and the unravelling of community. Any cultural interpretation of responsibility is bound up with politics, language, culture and society and has a history that's not simply progressive and linear. Jordan Peterson has written that we must each adopt as much responsibility as possible for individual life, society and the world. Instead, maybe we should remember that we're all dependent on one another in some way, that responsibility should be placed on the powerful and not the powerless, and that the dispossessed are more likely to succeed with some kind of external aid. Instead of being responsible for ourselves, the concept of mutual obligations or duties includes responsibility to work hard and improve ourselves, but can also better accommodate contributing to the world, aiding others, remembering no man is an island, and turning our gaze not inwards, but out to others. Hey everyone, I think this was one of my most ambitious yet. It was difficult to find all those clips, uh, but was great looking through lots of old footage. I think I did a reasonably good job at finding what was required, but as always, that kind of work is only possible because of these incredible Patreons. If you'd like to join Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, I do my best to give you something in return, whether it's naming credits, access to the new Discord server where we discuss videos like this one, or just early access to the scripts and the videos. Uh, you can do so through the link in the description below, and it's hugely, hugely appreciated. If not, like, share, all the rest of it, but most importantly, thank you for watching. Hit subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.